Specialty Story, session number 44. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast is here to tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. This week, we have a great episode for you, a pediatric surgical subspecialty that I know will interest a lot of you. Now, this week, I'm talking to Dr. Michael Egner, an academic pediatric neurosurgeon, and he's going to talk about his practice, his career, and what he likes about being a pediatric neurosurgeon, what he doesn't like about pediatric neurosurgery, and so much more. Now, Dr. Egner has been out of fellowship training now for 26 years and is a faculty member at Stony Brook University. We start the conversation by talking about how he first got involved in medicine and then into pediatric neurosurgery. Well, when I was very young, my mother had a brain aneurysm that ruptured uh, and uh, she survived, but she did have some neurological sequela. And so from the time I was a very young child, our family had involvement with neurosurgeons. Uh, and so it was always thought of within my family that, that to, to be a neurosurgeon was sort of the pinnacle of what one could accomplish uh, in terms of a professional uh, accomplishment. Uh, so I always had a lot of respect for doctors in general and neurosurgeons in particular. Uh, and I found, um, I found medicine fascinating. Um, I uh, re- recall as a, as, a, uh, as a high school student, I read a book called Not as a Stranger, which was a um, novel about, uh, about a doctor and some drama and so on. And the novel itself was sort of unremarkable, but the, the title fascinated me. It, the, the title, Not as a Stranger, came from a passage in Job, in the 19th chapter of Job in the Bible, uh, in which Job is asked um, by his friends how he uh, deals with all of the horror that he has experienced, all the terrible things he's seen, and he said he he knows that what he's going through ultimately will allow him to see life and, and actually to see God and not as a stranger. That is, that he would come to know reality and know what it means to be a human being in a very intimate way. And I, I thought that was a fascinating title for a book on medicine because it, it kind of it, – to, to be a physician – you get to see uh, in an intimate way what life is all about, and, and you come to understand what it means to be a human being and not as a stranger. And um, so it fascinated me. I, I thought that was a beautiful way to look at life. You know, after you know, 30 years of doing this, uh, there are some things I'd rather be a stranger to at this point. <laughs> but, um, but, but still, it, was, it, it, it kind of motivated me and inspired me. I uh, was also inspired by uh, Dr. Christian Barnard, who was the first surgeon to perform a heart transplant. And that was in the news when I was a kid. And I recall seeing that and just thinking that was the most fascinating thing and the most wonderful thing. And I, I very much wanted to be a surgeon. I loved heart surgery. I was particularly fascinated by congenital heart defects, uh, about all of the, the, di- the dynamics of, of what happens inside a heart that is born with uh, abnormal chambers or abnormal valves and so on. But I was also fascinated by the brain. Uh, so, uh, but I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon, but I wasn't quite sure what kind. Um, out of 
high school, I went uh, into the army because I uh, needed money to go to college. Uh, and uh, so I was a medic for uh, three years uh, in the army. And then I um, got out of the army and I'd al- already been accepted at college and they gave me a deferred admission. So I, I started uh, at college when I was 20. I then uh, went to medical school after college. I, I was a little older when I went to college, so yeah, I was a little more focused, I think, than some of my classmates. I kind of knew what I wanted to do, so I worked really hard and uh, got into medical school. And then um, out of medical school, I um, still wasn't sure whether I wanted to do neurosurgery or cardiac surgery, so I started a general surgery internship at Mount Sinai in New York. And about halfway through my internship, I realized I really wanted to, to do neurosurgery. I thought that I, I kind of looked ahead 20 or 30 years down the road and said, you know, I, I think I'll still find the brain interesting after 20 or 30 years. I'm not sure the heart will fascinate me as much. So um, I applied outside of the match. I just called neurosurgery programs. And um, uh, they needed a, a resident at the University of Miami in uh, Jackson Memorial. So I uh, went down with uh, my newly married wife. Uh, it was wonderful of her to be willing to go with me to Miami because her family was from New York, uh, where we were currently living. And I spent six years in Miami training in neurosurgery. And then we came back up to Long Island, uh, where my wife's family's from. Uh, and I got a job at uh, uh, Stony Brook on the faculty here. What was it, looking back at that time when you were in your internship, what was it about looking forward 20 years and thinking to yourself, I, I think I'll still be interested in the brain in 20 years, but I'm not so sure about the heart? Honestly, it's just that the brain had so much, for, from what I saw, it had so many questions that were unanswered. Uh, not not that the heart isn't a, a wonderful topic of research and so on, but it struck me as a as as kind of a of a fascinating machine, but you can only take knowledge of a machine so far. I I, I thought that with the brain you could take the knowledge much much further. Um, the the other thing that 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 really enthralled me uh, was in medical school. I um, in neuroanatomy uh, we had a um, a a program textbook called Sidman and Sidman. I'm not sure if it's still used, but we used it to 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 uh, to do neuroanatomy and. I was just intrigued by neuroanatomy, by the structure of the basal ganglia and the structure of the cortex. And, and, and I, I, I felt almost as if I was learning a secret, that, that there was a secret to what life was all about, and it was in the brain. It was in the structure of the brain. Um, as it turns out, over the years, I've come to be a little skeptical of that particular viewpoint. I think it's kind of a, of a materialistic way of looking at human beings. But it certainly was fascinating and still is fascinating. So um, I, I really felt that you know, the, the brain was something that could keep me interested indefinitely. And the heart was a little too purely mechanical for the long term for me. Okay, makes sense. What traits do you think lead to being a good pediatric neurosurgeon? Well, I should first mention how I got into pediatric neurosurgery. Yeah. Um, I, um, I didn't come out of training specifically as a pediatric neurosurgeon. I did my usual pediatric neurosurgery rotations as a resident, uh, but did general neurosurgery for several years. I had always kind of liked pediatrics. Uh, I, I, I kind of liked the patients. I mean, the babies are cute and fun and everything. Uh, and I always seemed to have um, a fair amount of empathy for parents. Uh, you know, I could always understand why a parent would be freaked out by by having a sick child. Um, I also kind of had a personality for it, meaning I, I 
got along pretty well with pediatricians and neurosurgeons and pediatricians in some ways are, are, are thought of as being at the opposite ends of the spectrum of medical personalities. You know, pediatricians are tend to be uh, warm, uh, nice people who, who, you know, uh, just are, are nice to their families and patients and neurosurgeons are, are thought of at least as being egotistical and, and, and somewhat dysfunctional people who, um, you know, are, are sort of uh, just operate like like crazy and don't uh, have a lot of empathy necessarily. And uh, although those stereotypes are not entirely true on either side, um, pediatricians respond very well to a neurosurgeon who is nice to them. And I was fairly nice to them. So what actually happened at Stony Brook was after a couple of years, we didn't have a pediatric neurosurgeon specifically. And the pediatricians liked me and, and, and sent me a lot of patients. And the chairman of pediatrics ultimately asked if I'd be willing to just become the designated pediatric neurosurgeon. And I said, well, sure, I like the work. I was also fascinated by hydrocephalus as a clinical condition. So uh, there's a um, there's a a, a way to get boarded in pediatric neurosurgery that's outside of the fellowship track. Uh, and I, so I took that way. And it's a matter of uh, submitting case logs for several years and um, taking a, a written exam. Uh, and uh, so I, I got boarded in pediatric neurosurgery by that by that method. Okay. Very interesting. All right. So back to the, the original question. At this point, now that you are a pediatric neurosurgeon, what, what traits do you think uh, a student should have and somebody going through training should have to be a good pediatric neurosurgeon? Well, it is a, it's a blend of two very different species. Uh, one is a pediatrician, uh, as I said, who they, they tend to be people who are, uh, warm, nice people who love the kids and want to take care of them. And neurosurgeons, who, uh, you know, quite often are rather egotistical people and, and, and very, um, surgically oriented. So if you find that you, you love the surgery and you're, you're fascinated by the, by the brain and you, you like some of the, um, technical challenges of neurosurgery but on the on the, the other hand you 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 want to take care of kids you want to deal with families uh perhaps you find conditions like hydrocephalus to be uh, very challenging and very fascinating from a scientific standpoint uh so it, it's kind of a it's kind of a hybrid of two different ways of practicing medicine you've mentioned a couple times now neurosurgeons as these egotistical beings what do you think it is that draws that personality type towards neurosurgery. Yeah, and one has to be careful not to not to sort of uh, exaggerate that. I mean, the, the reality is some of the nicest, uh, most decent people I know are neurosurgeons, uh, but but also some of the craziest people I know are neurosurgeons. <laughs> so it's it's a very it's a very interesting specialty. Um, obviously, there's a bit of the god com complex that goes along with it. I mean, neuros neurosurgeons have to have a, a, some degree of almost irrational confidence in their in their own abilities i mean it's the kind of thing that uh normal normal human beings don't don't want to do i mean to go in and take a tumor out of someone's brain where you stand a, a, a reasonable chance of killing them uh, if you make a mistake is not something that even people who are otherwise inclined to surgery have a particular uh comfort with doing uh so you have to um you have to be fairly egotistical to do this for a living um, and of course, the question is, how does one um, accommodate that? How, do, how does one pull that off in the real world? And that neurosurgeons have a lot of different ways of doing it. Uh, some, some neurosurgeons uh, just concentrate on being technically as good as they possibly can. Other neurosurgeons um, are, are, are sort of psychopaths in a, in a, in a non-criminal way, I mean, meaning that they're, they're people who, who don't, some neurosurgeons just don't 
take into account so much um, the humanity on the other end of the of, of 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 the operating table, and they they just do the job as well as they can, and that you know if it works out, it works out. If not, they go on to the next patient. Um, some neurosurgeons limit their practice uh, so that they only do things that they feel comfortable doing. Um, uh, and some neurosurgeons don't put it together very well at all and, and, you know, and don't do such a good job. What sorts of diseases, pathologies, types of patients are you seeing? Well, I, uh, as a pediatric neurosurgeon, uh, a large fraction of my practice is uh, with hydrocephalus. Uh, so I have quite a few kids who have shunts and hydrocephalus, and I follow them into adulthood, so I also have a fair number of adult patients. Um, and it's becoming a real issue in pediatric neurosurgery that um, neurosurgeons, pediatric neurosurgeons who work at um, uh, hospitals uh, that are also adult hospitals um, have the question as to whether they will follow their pediatric patients when they grow up and become adults. They still have their shunts. They still have their hydrocephalus. And I think most pediatric neurosurgeons do. Uh, some pediatric neurosurgeons who work at children's hospitals can't do that because the patients can't be cared for at the hospital they work at. Um, I deal a lot with hydrocephalus in both children and adults. I actually deal with hydrocephalus in elderly people as well because I'm sort of the hydrocephalus guy. Um, I see elderly people who have normal pressure hydrocephalus. I also see patients with brain tumors, uh, particularly children, but some adults as well. I, uh, I see patients who have Chiari malformations, uh, children and adults, and patients who have syringomyelia, uh, spinal cord cysts. Um, that, that forms a, a large part of my practice. I, I also see patients who have craniosynostosis, infants who have deformed skulls, and of course trauma, uh, adult and pediatric trauma. I, I, I see a lot of. A lot of students that are going through this process learn to love the the investigation to figure out what's going on. But a lot of times when you get further into a specialty, patients are already coming to you diagnosed with, with a known issue. What percentage of patients do you think you see that already have a known issue that you're just there to fix? Oh, well, yeah, and that's a very interesting point. It's a point that I, I, I deal with a lot because it's a very common scenario that I'll see a patient, a child with a brain tumor. And the... Um, pediatrician uh, on the other end feels a lot of guilt about it because almost invariably a child who does present with a brain tumor has several months of symptoms and the pediatricians uh, work it up and the child maybe had some vomiting or some headache and after a month or two of evaluation they, they get sent for a scan and then the tumor is found and the pediatricians almost always feel guilty about that they feel gee you know, if the first time this kid came to my office i should have done this or that and i tell them that in some sense the neurosurgeon has the easiest job because virtually all my patients come to me with a scan that, that, that shows what's wrong with them uh the primary care people the pediatricians or the internists for adults have, I think, a much tougher job because they see uh, a large volume of patients, only a small fraction of whom have serious problems going on, and they have to find the ones that have the serious problems. Uh, I don't. I mean, I, I, so the vast majority of, of my patients uh, come to me with a diagnosis already made, and my, my job is to, is to treat it. Um, the major judgment issues that I face um, are, number one, um, is the patient's diagnosis responsible for the patient's symptoms, and which can be tricky. I mean, there are people who have um, uh, Chiari mal malformations, which are abnormalities of the base of the brain, um, who have headaches, who have headaches that aren't from the Chiari malformation and don't need surgery for the Chiari mal malformation. So it can be hard to sort out 
are the patient's symptoms really uh, caused by the disease that you identify on the scan? And you have to be sure they are because the remedy you're offering is surgery and you, you want to make sure that, that you're operating for good reasons. Um, so that's one issue I, I face quite a bit is making sure that the diagnosis is the cause of the symptoms. Um, uh, and uh, on, on occasion, I'll get patients where the diagnosis isn't clear and I, I have to do tests to sort that out. Describe a typical week for an academic pediatric neurosurgeon. I'll give my week because it differs a little bit depending upon whether you're in a hospital, for example, that has a lot of trauma or not. But um, a typical week would be that I'm on call once or twice during that week uh, at night, and I, I take general neurosurgery call. Uh, and uh, that can be rather challenging. Maybe one night out of three, I end up having to go in and uh, do surgery. Um, during the day, I have two operative days a week, uh, and uh, I average maybe anywhere from two to four or five cases a week. Uh, and um, I have uh, two or three clinics a week. Uh, clinics are now are half-day uh, clinics, uh, where I'll see uh, maybe uh, 15 or 20 patients per clinic. And I have some academic time. Uh, it's usually about one and a half days a week where I uh, write papers. I'm also, um, we don't have a residency in neurosurgery, so I'm the uh, residency director for a program without a residency. So I'm in the process now of, of, of applying for a residency. And I teach medical students as they rotate through the service, and I teach in the, uh, the ethics class uh, at Stony Brook. When you're seeing patients in the clinic as a surgeon, what percentage of those patients are you actually then going to take to the operating room? It's a relatively small percentage of patients. I'd say probably 10 or 20 percent. Um, many of the patients I see are follow-ups after surgery. Uh, many of them are uh, children with uh, shunts uh, who I see annually uh, who don't need surgery, but I see them annually because I think it's very important if you if you have a shunt for hydrocephalus that you have a neurosurgeon who knows you and they and and, and that that you know the neurosurgeon and that the neurosurgeon is always available to you. And I find that annual visits kind of keep everything fresh and so we kind of know each other. Um, but I'd say probably ten or twenty percent of patients I see in the office ultimately come come to surgery. I, I do a lot of uh, kind of hand holding, a lot of. Uh, a very common reason for patients seeing me in the, in the office is a, a kid will, uh, you know, bump his head on uh, on the baseball field or will have a mild headache and get a scan. And something will be seen on the scan that, that almost certainly has no pathological significance. But the primary care doctor sends the child to me to, to be seen and uh, just, you know, a, a tiny cyst or a little spot on the brain. And my job really is to reassure the family that there's nothing serious. You mentioned taking call a couple nights a week. What does that call look like? Are you needing to come into the to the hospital a lot, or are you just doing it from home? Um, most of the coming into the hospital is for surgery, uh, and we don't have residents, uh, so any surgery done has to be done by the attending. We have physician extenders who are, who are wonderful, but I still have to come in and do the surgery. And actually, nowadays, um, uh, generally, residents don't operate alone anyway, so even if we had residents, I would have to come in. Uh, and uh, yeah, I come in and do uh, you know fix shunts or, or, or uh, take out subdurals or intracerebral hemorrhages or things like that. Uh, and uh, as I said, it's Maybe about a third of the call nights I end up coming in. What does the path look like, the training path, to become a pediatric neurosurgeon with residency and fellowship and all that stuff? Well, uh, tr traditionally, neurosurgery residencies have been uh, five or six years 
um, and uh, including the internship year, uh, followed by a year or two of fellowship if you want to do a fellowship. Um, or the, this past uh, two years, um, the ACGME and the uh, Residency Review Committee for Neurosurgery have standardized neurosurgical training. So now it's, it's a seven-year program, uh, including uh, a year of uh, fundamental clinical skills, uh, which used to be the internship, and, uh, and then six years of, of uh, explicit you know, neuro, neurosurgical training. And the tendency now is to infold the um, fellowship experience into the, um, into the seven-year residency. So you don't do a fellowship after, you do it during, during your residency. You take a year or whatever and uh, specialize in a particular uh, sub, sub-discipline of neurosurgery. Do those programs, is that seven years, is there research involved? Is it, is it mostly all clinical? Uh, yeah, there is research, uh, and uh, it's a major uh, emphasis of the Residency Review Committee in Neurosurgery to uh, foster research in neurosurgery. So uh, research is involved. In fact, programs are required to have a research curriculum uh, where there's training and research methods, and residents are, are expected to uh, to be um, academically active and to, and to publish during their residency. And programs are reviewed. Uh, by the RSC, uh, uh, based in, in part on uh, the um, research output of their faculty and and of their residents. How competitive is a neurosurgery? It's a good question. Um, I don't actually have the 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 uh, the up to date numbers, but my sense of it is that about half of applicants get into programs. That that's certainly the sense I've had over the years. It's you know it's moderately competitive. Um, uh, it's it's a small specialty. There are, there are about a hundred programs uh, in the country, uh, and um, uh, of course uh, there there aren't a whole lot of people who are interested in going into it. But I my, my sense is about fifty percent of applicants get in. Why do you think it is so competitive? Well, uh, it appeals to a fair number of people, and particularly people who are highly motivated. Uh, you, you have to really want to. To, to practice medicine at a fairly intense level to, to, to want to go into neurosurgery. Uh, and people uh, may, may also be attracted by the, by the status. Uh, they may be attracted by, by, the, uh, by the financial aspects. Neuro, neurosurgeons do fairly well financially. And uh, there aren't uh, enough people who are repelled by the, uh, by the volume of the work or the nature of the work. So it's, it's, it, it has, it's fairly popular given what, what a small specialty it is. Yeah, it is pretty small. I have the the numbers. According to this, there's only 218 positions. Is that does that sound about right? In pediatric neurosurgery, yes, that, that's about right. There there are a couple of hundred pediatric neurosurgeons in the country. Pediatric neurosurgery is is one of the less popular neurosurgical specialties. Um, uh, so within the neurosurgical profession. Um, pediatric neuros- neurosurgery is uh, by no means the most the most popular subspecialty. Uh, spinal neurosurgery is very popular. General neurosurgery, uh, vascular, actually has a lot of people now nowadays. Um, pediatric neurosurgery isn't terribly popular. Number one, because many neurosurgeons don't like dealing with shunts. Uh, many neurosurgeons don't like dealing with kids or with families. <laughs> uh, and pediatric neurosurgery doesn't necessarily pay as well as other neuro- uh, neurosurgical specialties uh, as a general rule. It seems to be a very general rule across all pediatric subspecialties is that the pay isn't as good as it is for adults. That's very true. That's very true. Children don't vote. And uh, so reimbursement for kids just has, has, has never been up there yeah. uh, with that for adults. So you, you, you don't go into it for the money. 
what should a student be doing now that actually you're you're in the process of of starting a residency at Stony Brook? What should a student be doing to be competitive for a residency spot? I would say there are besides being a good student and being a good human being, which always help you, I'd say there are two things that students should focus on. One would be uh, research. You, you, you want to have some publications. Um, that's extremely appealing to a, a, to a neurosurgical residency program. Uh, and the second would be um, that you um, have some hands-on experience, particularly with the programs that you're applying to. Uh, when I was a resident in Miami, um, we, we took two, two residents a year, and there was sort of an unwritten rule that one resident was taken based on his CV, and the other resident was taken based on our personal experience with him. So somebody would rotate through our service, and we kind of got to know him personally. And um, it turned out uh, that the people who did the best in the residency were almost invariably the people who had rotated through the service and who we knew personally. Because the, the, the residency in neurosurgery is so long and it is such a stressful process that it, it's almost like a short marriage. I mean, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're going to work with this resident for seven years in fairly intimate ways in the middle of the night, saving lives, doing all these stressful things. You really want it to be somebody who you know you can work with, somebody who you can trust and, and, and who you can stand for seven years. And um, so it's very important to programs uh, that the people they take are people they know. Uh, and uh, so if I were a medical student applying to neurosurgery, I would uh, try to arrange external rotations at the programs I was most interested in applying to so that when my application came across their desk, they would, they would know who they were, who they were dealing with. Um, but the, the research is also a big deal, and it's a big deal um, partly because it's, you know, it's good to be a good researcher and so on. But it's also a, the programs have a lot of stress on them from the ACGME and from the RSC to, to have residents that do research. That, that's one of the criteria by which uh, recertification of the program is determined. And um, if you have a resident in your program who is a, uh, already an established researcher, it just makes it much more likely that he's going to continue doing research and make, continue making your program look good. So uh, you know, having a research background is very, very appealing to uh, programs. Whether in the long run, having a research background makes you a better um, a better resident and a better neurosurgeon. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm not so convinced of, but it certainly makes you more likely to be accepted into a program. For the osteopathic student listening to this right now, who wants to go into pediatric neurosurgery, what do they have to do to overcome some of those negative biases towards osteopaths? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, my, my own experience with osteopaths has been uh, almost uniformly positive. That is, that uh, some of the best doctors I know are osteopaths, and my, my personal doctor is an osteopath. So um, I, I think osteopaths are excellent doctors as a general rule. And I know that osteopathic programs have just, I think just this year, been uh, brought into the ACGME. Um, and uh, so that's a, that, that's a very good thing, I think. There are osteopathic neurosurgery training programs, uh, and I think they do a very good job, uh, although now uh, they may be enfolding them, uh, and I'm not sure how that's working exactly, into uh, allopathic training. Um, but uh, osteopathic students, um, uh, you know, I, I think they're, they're, they're in an excellent profession, uh, and uh, they can be very good doctors and very good neurosurgeons, and I've worked with many excellent osteopaths in neurosurgery and other specialties. Once you are a pediatric neurosurgeon, are there further opportunities to subspecialize? 
Yes, but not in a formal way. Uh, meaning, uh, meaning that um, there's there, there's a boarding process for pediatric neurosurgeons. Although the boards, I don't believe, are ACGME certified, so that there are boards, uh, but it, but it's not on the same status as, for example, the neurosurgery boards or the internal medicine boards and so on. But beyond that, um, I'm not aware of any certification process um, uh, beyond pediatric neurosurgery. But there are certainly are pediatric neurosurgeons who have particular interests, uh, whether it's a hydrocephalus, whether it's epilepsy surgery, whether it is cerebrovascular uh, whether it's tumor, uh, so you can kind of develop uh, within the pediatric neurosurgical world your own little niche uh, if you're in academics. For the future pediatrician listening to this, what would you say to him or her about your specialty and, and all of the knowledge that you have to make their job a little bit easier when dealing with potential neurosurgery cases? I think it's it's always nice for pediatric neurosurgeons and pediatricians to uh, to become friends to to sort of get a personal relationship where um, uh, you know the pediatrician kind of knows you personally and I get a lot of calls from pediatricians just asking kind of common sense questions they've got a baby with a dimple on their back uh, they want to know what kinds of dimples might imply something seriously wrong inside the spine and what kinds of dimples are harmless. Uh, they may have a child with an asymmetrical head and what kind of asymmetry of the skull um, is craniosynostosis and requires surgery and what kind is just sort of innocent normal variation. Uh, they may have a child uh, who had a concussion in a, in a, in a, in a, in a little league game and they may, wa- may want to know something about the, about the management. So I find that in the uh, in the relationship between pediatricians and neurosurgeons, uh, that just forming long-term friendship that you can call your friend Mike, who's a pediatric neurosurgeon, or, or uh, is a big help to the uh, pediatricians. And frankly, there are situations where I call the pediatricians. Well, I'll have a patient who uh, has a neurosurgical issue but also has some pediatric issues, and I'll speak with the pediatrician about helping out with that. Outside of pediatrics, what other specialties do you work the closest with? I certainly work a lot with um, uh, intensivists, uh, both pediatric intensivists and adult intensivists. Uh, neurosurgeons deal with a lot of patients who are critically ill, so we, we, we get to know the intensivists very well. Um, I deal with the orthopedists quite a bit uh, because there are a number of pediatric neurosurgical si- situations where uh, orthopedists are great help. Um, particularly, for example, it's not uncommon that kids who have uh, syringomyelia, spinal cord cysts, will also have spinal deformities uh, that need pediatric orthopedic management, and occasionally will even operate together. Uh, I'll, I'll fix a cyst in the, uh, or untether a spinal cord uh, while the orthopedic surgeon deals with scoliosis or spinal deformity. Um, so orthopedists are, are, are commonly get involved. Uh, otolaryngology uh, is commonly involved with neurosurgery uh, with patients who have issues at the base of the skull and their dural, in, in their uh, facial sinuses. Um, so I work with uh, otolaryngologists a lot. And, of course, neurologists. Uh, I, I work a great deal with uh, pediatric neurologists. I think that's extremely important, um, uh, both just in terms of maintaining uh, you know, a good referral base, but also in terms of uh, sorting out what for neurosurgery is is really a, a fundamental question that comes up all the time, and that is the patient has a potentially operable lesion on uh, on a scan, but is that operable lesion responsible for the symptoms they're having? 
uh, and working closely with neurologists can be a big help in, in that regard. For example, if I have a child who has a Chiari mal malformation and headaches, uh, the Chiari malformation can be fixed surgically, but it's a big operation, and not everybody with a Chiari needs to have surgeries. So my question is, are the child's headaches coming from the Chiari? And a, a, a good pediatric neurologist can help me answer that question. You mentioned orthopedics. Now, when I was on my journey to becoming an orthopod initially was what I wanted to do, and seeing orthopedic spine surgeons and hearing the discussion about the, the turf wars between who owns the spine. Is it, is it neurosurgery or is it orthopedics? For somebody who wants to go into neurosurgery because they are interested in doing spine surgery, is that turf war something they should need to worry about moving forward? First of all, in general neurosurgery, most of the, um, of the operative stuff is spinal. Um, uh, general neurosurgeons, probably 80% 80, 80 of their cases at least are, 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 are spine. Um, and most of the spine stuff they do uh, overlaps with orthopedic spine. I mean, most of it is extradural. You know, you're taking out discs and, and putting in pedicle screws and things like that. Most general neurosurgery practice, particularly in private practice, is spine. And there actually is a movement that's been going on now for several decades in neurosurgery to uh, relinquish uh, cranial privileges if you're a private practice neurosurgeon. Uh, because many private practice neurosurgeons find that um, the cranial surgery, um, because it, it forms only a small fraction of the number of cases they do, uh, but it, it, it does form a, a very large fraction of the difficult situations they encounter, uh, that it's just not worth it. That uh, also it makes your call much worse. That is, if you're doing uh, cranial neurosurgery, you get called in at night for that subdural in the ER. But if your um, practice is restricted to spinal neurosurgery, um, you know you don't get called in for the uh, for the for the cranial problems. So uh, many private practice neurosurgeons restrict their practice to spine. Uh, and uh, I have a very good friend in Florida who's been doing that now for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, he's, he's very happy. It, it, it makes for a very nice practice. As far as the overlap with orthopedics, um, it used to be that the distinction between orthopedic and neurosurgical spinal work was uh, instrumentation and fusion, that uh, neurosurgeons would do spinal work, but they didn't do much instrumentation and fusion, but that's really changed now. And instrumentation and fusion is very, very much a part of neurosurgical practice. So there's a lot of overlap. Um, and I, I've never thought of it as being particularly competitive, although I, I think my, my spine colleagues may feel differently about that. But we have a good relationship with our orthopedic colleagues here at Stony Brook. Uh, and um, uh, you know, about the only difference in the work we do is that neurosurgeons don't tend to do congenital deformity sco scoliosis. So uh, kids with scoliosis uh, still tend to be treated only by orthopedists and not by neurosurgeons. And orthopedists, uh, generally speaking, don't do intradural surgery. So they, they wouldn't remove a, an intradural tumor or uh, treat a syrinx. What do you know now that you wish you knew going into pediatric neurosurgery? I don't know that there's anything in particular that I didn't know that would profoundly affect my decision to do what I did. I, I don't think I would do anything differently. Um, I, I thought a lot about that, and um, I like pediatric neurosurgery. Um, I'm very interested in hydrocephalus from a research stand standpoint. And um, that, that's, that's been, uh, most of my research has been on hydrocephalus and on dynamics and the cranium re related to it. I don't know that I would do anything really all that differently if I had it to do again. 
there are other specialties within neurosurgery that are great specialties. I mean, spinal neur- neurosurgery is, 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 is wonderful work. Um, uh, tumor neurosurgery is fascinating. Uh, but each of them has their drawbacks. Uh, for example, spinal neurosurgery, um, you have to kind of want to deal with spine patients, and spine patients can be um, somewhat difficult patients to deal with. They're, they're in chronic pain. It, it has to be something that, that you like doing, and it, it's not really for me. Uh, tumor work is fascinating, uh, but many of your patients, especially adult patients, are, are dying. And uh, to, to go into work every day, to go into clinic and, and, and see patient after patient who has a terminal illness is, is, a, is, a, is a hard thing to do. Um, cerebrovascular neurosurgery is a very powerful specialty now with a lot of good work. Uh, but the cerebrovascular people, they, they work extremely hard. Um, and uh, you deal with some very difficult clinical situations, and uh, the call can be brutal because you know you're you're you're, you're taking call for strokes and things like that. Uh, functional neurosurgery um, is great work for people who who are fascinated by the intellectual aspects of epilepsy and movement disorders, uh, but you have to have a certain personality to do that. The functional cases are 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 very. Um, detailed uh, sort of high-tech cases that you have to like doing. Uh, so I don't know that from my perspective I would do anything particularly different. I, I like pediatric neurosurgery. What do you like the most about being a pediatric neurosurgeon? Well, honestly, I like fixing shunts. I mean, even some pediatric neurosurgeons don't like that too much. But I find hydrocephalus a fascinating condition. I'm very interested in the dynamics of hydrocephalus. I think there's much that we don't understand about it. And it's often been said, and I, I think there's a lot of truth in this, is that hydrocephalus is the one neurosurgical condition where you can come into the hospital near death and walk out of the hospital a day or two later just fine. Uh, and there aren't many neurosurgical, there aren't many conditions, period, where, where, where you can do that. And in neurosurgery, there aren't. If you think about it, I mean, if you have a brain hemorrhage or a brain tumor or an aneurysm, you come into the hospital and you're, you're looking at months of, of intensive medical care to try to get you back to health. Hydrocephalus, you can, you can come in blowing a pupil and, um, and go home in two days uh, if they fix your shunt in time and your pupil comes down. So hydrocephalus, you can get uh, incredibly dramatic results. Uh, so I find uh, managing shunts to be, frankly, challenging. Uh, and unlike most neurosurgeons, uh, I don't dislike shunts. I, I, I think they're fascinating things and, and I like fixing them. What do you like the least about being a pediatric neurosurgeon? I'd say patients not doing well. Uh, and, and that, I think, is something that all doctors have to deal with to some extent. And, and doctors who deal with, with critically ill patients deal with uh, the most, and neurosurgeons as much as any, is um, you, um, over the years, you uh, get what, what I call and some of my colleagues have called uh, faces in your, in your, in, in your head. You get faces of people who, um, who, did, who didn't survive uh, or who were hurt um, and uh, for whom you feel some responsibility. Um, even if you didn't, in, in, in any objective sense, make any mistakes. And, and let's face it, neurosurgeons do, do make mistakes. That's part of being human and part of the job. But even if um, an objective observer wouldn't think of the outcome as a mistake, you still kind of hold it in your heart or hold it in your head as, gee, if I had done something differently, could this patient have done better? Uh, so, uh, and I think actually one of the most important things about being a neurosurgeon and something I tell students who are considering going into neurosurgery is that you have to, you, you have to deal with that. You have to find some way of dealing with bad outcomes. 
Um, you know, if, if you are a neurosurgeon who has a major complication rate of one of one percent, you're a pretty good neurosurgeon. I mean, that, that's a very good complication rate for major cases. But if you're doing 200 cases a year, that means that two patients a year are going to have major complications. Uh, and if you're doing it for 30 years, that means there are 60 people out there who've had major complications that are sort of uh, uh, you know, your, your responsibility, and you live with those faces in, in uh, your head. So I, I tell students considering going into neurosurgery, pediatric neurosurgery or, or, or otherwise, that you have to be able to deal with that. And it's hard. Uh, some neurosurgeons quit. There's a tremendous uh, um, rate of, of people leaving the specialty. Uh, some neurosurgeons um, do dysfunctional things. They drink, they take drugs, they become egotistical creeps. They get all kinds of ways of dealing with it. Some neurosurgeons become religious. Some neurosurgeons uh, limit their practice to things they can do safely. Um, but um, dealing with the stressful cases and dealing with the bad outcome and dealing with litigation, which is uh, every neurosurgeon's bane. I mean, neurosurgeons have targets on their backs when it comes to lawyers. Uh, dealing with all, all that is, is hard, and it's a major part of the stress that neurosurgeons go through. Um, for, for people who are interested in that topic, um, there's a neurosurgeon named Henry Marsh who wrote a book called Do No Harm. Um, and it's, 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 been, it's been out a couple of years now. And it's a great book. And he, um, he's a very prominent uh, British neurosurgeon. He did what doctors tend not to, especially neurosurgeons tend not to, is that he wrote a book about all his bad outcomes. So the book wasn't about how gifted he was and all the great successes he had, although he's a gifted neurosurgeon and has had many great successes. The book was about his catastrophes. Uh, and uh, it's a very sober book and a, and a, and a very honest book. And people who are considering going into neurosurgery should take a look at that book. For somebody going into neurosurgery or thinking about going into neurosurgery, what major changes are coming to the field that they should be aware of? The most dramatic change that's occurred in neurosurgery over the past, uh, or during my career, has been in cerebrovascular neurosurgery with endovascular techniques. The ability to treat aneurysms with endovascular methods, to treat AVMs, to treat strokes, uh, none of that was possible when I was in training. So that's been a real revolution, uh, but it, it's affected primarily endovascular neurosurgeons, So, uh, but, but that's a big change. Um, the pediatric neurosurgery, I don't see a whole lot changing with the exception uh, that we're seeing a lot less spina bifida than we used to, both because um, of, I think, folate supplementation and bread and milk and so on is reducing the incidence of spina bifida. And also prenatal diagnosis, many of these babies are being aborted prenatally. So there, it used to be that spina bifida was a major part of, neuro, of pediatric neurosurgical practice. We're seeing less of it now nowadays. Um, Tumor work, uh, there's been a, a lot of research in tumors, uh, but the basic management of tumors, both uh, glioblastomas and metastatic tumors in adults, I don't think has changed all that radically uh, in the time that I've been practicing. Uh, in spine, um, the thing that has always concerned me about spine is that there was a study done uh, a, a while back by a, one of the big neurosurgical organizations looking at which neurosurgical operations are underperformed and which are overperformed. And um, they felt, for example, that functional neurosurgery was underperformed, that for every one patient who had epilepsy surgery, there probably were 10 people out there who, who might benefit from epilepsy surgery but don't get it. Uh, the surgery that was overperformed was spinal surgery. 
Uh, and um, while most neurosurgeons, I think, are ethical, good, good doctors, um, the reality is that probably more people have spinal surgery than really need spinal surgery. And many people could recover from their spinal problems with good physical therapy and, and non, non-surgical management. What I've been concerned about over the years was that insurers and the government at some point will decide to reimburse spine at a much lower level and be much more stringent in their reimbursement, uh, which would affect neurosurgery in a very profound way because most, most of our income stream comes from spinal surgery. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a pediatric neurosurgeon? Yes, I don't think I would do anything differently. Any last words of wisdom for a student out there thinking about pediatric neurosurgery? Um, if it's it's got to be something that's in your heart, it's got to be a passion. It's not something you do for um, any particular kind of monetary gain. Uh, you know, the pay is not bad, but but that's not why people do this. Um, and um, you you have to take into account the emotional stress uh, of, uh, of dealing with people's lives uh, and, uh, on such an intense personal level. Uh, and um, I didn't realize what that stress was really until I became an attending. I didn't even feel the stress as a resident. But when you're sort of when the buck stops at your desk and you're, you're the pediatric neurosurgeon, um, you're going to have patients who don't do well and um, you have to have the um, kind of psychological and perhaps even spiritual resources to deal with that. All right, there you have it again. That was Dr. Michael Egner talking all about pediatric neurosurgery. If you're interested in neurosurgery or pediatric neurosurgery, I hope this podcast episode was great for you. If you have any suggestions on people we should have, physicians we should have here on this podcast, shoot me an email, ryan at medical school. HQ.net. We're always looking for great guests. Our guest today was actually the parent of a student who listens to this podcast. So if you know somebody that would be a great guest, let me know. Ryan at medical school, HQ.net. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here at Specialty Stories.